0: Boston College School of Theology and Ministry is committed to the intersection between theology, culture, and contemporary questions, preparing leaders who are equipped to serve the church and the world through diverse career paths. Generous financial aid is available. Learn more at bc.edu/stm. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's
1: good to be with you, Ashley.
0: Good to be here.
1: And I'm feeling good, celebrating three years of marriage today. Wow. So shout out to my wife more than anyone, <laughs> Amanda.
0: uh um, congratulations. Thanks,
1: thanks. Feeling good. I've got a great glass of Pinot Noir. Yes. Um, and ready to talk some theology today. Oh, yeah.
0: We're nerding out. We are talking to Ilia Delio. She is a Franciscan sister of Washington, D.C. and a theologian specializing in the area of science and religion. And like I said, we we geek out on both of those. She has this really fascinating theology, I guess, of evolution and what it means for, for the Catholic faith.
1: Yeah. I, You know, going into this, I was like, and I think a lot of our listeners will relate to this, is that I was like, yeah, Evolution, Catholicism, totally fine, compatible, no mm-hmm. problems. Uh, then we start talking a little bit with Elia, uh, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> There's actually a lot of things I haven't thought through completely here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think we, a lot of us grew up with this idea of God as you know, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, but kind of static and not something that's changing. And so when you introduce the idea of an evolving God, it can shake shake your faith a little bit.
1: Or I'm okay <laughs> with um, the idea that something has evolved into me in the perfect final form. Yeah. I'm less uh, familiar and comfortable with the idea that Something that will, we're, will
0: might evolve into something else. Yes,
1: and God will love that thing too. <laughs> um, that 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 raises some questions for me.
0: But we should say that Ilia, uh, yes, she's working on the cutting edge of theology, but she's also a faithful Catholic. She has dedicated her life to the church. She is a vowed religious, and she doesn't she doesn't see herself as as you know challenging the church or challenging the faith of you know people who read her theology, but very much taking seriously what's happening in her world right now you know, technology is destabilizing for all of us. And so it's not surprising that theology is going to be, too.
1: Sometimes these are conversations that are hard and you want to, like, lean away from. But we're going to try to uh, lean into those today. So uh, get ready. Your brain might hurt after this.
0: (laughs) But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What are we talking about this week, Zach?
1: Well, we're talking over Pinot Noir. Oh.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> How
1: dare you skip that? Um, this is what Ilya recommended this week. And so we were happy to, I was happy to go pick some up because in my mind, this is like the perfect fall wine. And you said-
0: I'll take your word for uh, it. Yeah.
1: You, I said this to you earlier and you were skeptical. Uh, I was just
0: like, is there ever not a time for Pinot Noir? <laughs>
1: that's that's a very good point. However, I think it's like a nice transition between like zippy, acidic, summer wine, white wines and, you know, winters for heavy- Cabernet Sauvignons, Mm -hmm. Merlots, and this is sort of a light red, so a nice, like, transition wine, I think. Perhaps an evolutionary wine, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) All right, cheers. Cheers.
0: And now it's time for Signs of the Times. So what are we talking about, Zach?
1: So uh, this week, I know it's been on all of your calendars, (laughs) um, was the 60th anniversary of the opening of Vatican II. And Pope Francis marked it this week with a mass at St. Peter's Basilica, which is where Vatican II took place. Side note, they moved the body of John the 23rd um, from. It's already, it, we were just there, right? Yep. It's yep. already pretty close to the main altar, but they're like, no, we want to get it even closer because, of course, St. John the 23rd was the pope that started the council. Um, I just. I feel like it doesn't you,
0: get more Catholic than that. <laughs> no,
1: you just want a final resting place if you're a saint. I feel like, and you never ever will get no. one, especially if you are in Rome. Or
0: yeah. yeah, you're not even guaranteed to have your body intact. <laughs> nope,
1: nope. So, um, anyway, good to see John the Twenty Third again. Um, but this was a really interesting homily that Pope Francis gave because he sort of alluded to the thing that uh, people know that really like to study Vatican II and talk about it, but we don't. It doesn't break out into normal culture very often. It's that a lot of people have a lot of thoughts and feelings about Vatican II. But before we get to that, I wonder if we could maybe just briefly introduce it for our listeners.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this started, it was convened in 1962. It lasted for four years, brought together thousands of bishops from around the world, theological advisors, um, even people from different Christian faith traditions uh, to talk about the state of the church, adapt to the modern, modern world. So basically, since the Protestant Reformation and then the French Revolution, the church was very much in a defensive crouch. It, you know, it saw modernity as a threat, and it needed to keep um, a tight lock on-
1: Democracy, it. bad. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Religious liberty, bad. <laughs> um, but then John the Twenty Third convened this council, which shocked the entire church. He was he was older when he was elected pope, and he was seen as kind of a transitional figure. And he ca- uh, calls this major ecumenical council um, that he said was, quote, meant to open the windows of the church. Uh, so let fresh air in um, and update the church for the modern age.
1: Vatican II is unique in the sense that it's not really started to define any doctrines necessarily or fight any heresies the way that, you know, some ones in the past had been. But as you mentioned, like the world is changing rapidly in 1960. Um, We're coming out of World War II, the Holocaust. um, There's a lot of stuff on the horizon. What is is the church going to be in this new world? Um, So that's sort of setting the stage a little bit. Going back to what Pope Francis said at Mass, he really wanted to warn us against uh, arguing about it a little too much,
0: yeah so there very much is a a split over how people see the council and interpret what the council was really trying to do it and and in his homily Pope Francis he he calls out both sides he he calls out a progressivism that's um you know too worldly just tries to adapt and accept everything the modern age brings and to and he calls out a traditionalism that is backward looking and sees the past as this ideal time and that Vatican II was a a break from that and we need to get back to the pre-conciliar church.
1: Yes. So building off of that homily, uh, Ross that published in a national newspaper this week, a uh, former guest on the show. Um, the headline was How Catholics Became Prisoners of Vatican II, um, which caused a lot of debate online. I would say people argued even more than they used to. <laughs> um, and you want to draw out some of the the live questions that are sort of, I don't know, still standing in, in the wake of the council. Did the council cause the you know, massive exodus from the priesthood, from religious life, from Sunday mass attendance, right? That all took a huge dip, um, in the Western church and the Western church had a lot of influence in this council. Did that cause all of that, uh, sort of decline in population and, and, and growth or, or was that inevitable? And yeah. did Vatican- I mean, you look
0: at, you look at non-Catholic Christian denominations that did not have Vatican II and they have faced the exact same uh, yeah, decline.
1: Absolutely. Um, was the were the were the changes in the liturgy effective, right? You know we we've talked about it on this podcast. People still love to talk about the lat mass and whether what what are its uh, upsides and downsides?
0: I also like to talk about the I would consider them liturgical abuses that happened in the wake of the council where you were um you know changing up the words of the mass, uh, bringing in music that did not exactly uh, lift up your. Hearts and mind to the sacred, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, play,
1: playing the hillbilly Thomas <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: at Mass. Um, so I, I don't know. These are all important questions, right?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I still have questions. My major one actually comes from the fact that, you know, neither of us, we've both lived after Vatican II. We have no lived experience of what the church was like before the council. And so, like, my, my, kind of questions are more like counterfactuals about like what the church would look like if Vatican II hadn't happened. Uh, you know, there are those who predict, pews would be full, full people love the Latin mass. Um, uh, but- Well,
1: those are super easy to prove yeah,
0: counterfactuals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I wanna know what the church would look like and I wanna know like what my own personal faith would look like if I hadn't grown up in the suburban post-Vatican II church that I did.
1: I think if you're asking these questions, it's evidence that you care anyway. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: It sounds familiar. Did you write an article about this? I I
1: did. I was just going (laughs) to plug it. So thank you. Um, So I wrote a piece in America this week. uh, It was called uh, Did Vatican II Fail? Are We Allowed to Ask the Question? Uh, I I get into that a little bit more. I try to respond to um, both Ross Dathlet's article and some of the people that were really, really upset with it Mm -hmm. on twitter.com. So we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. If you have questions about Vatican II, uh, maybe you don't, but maybe you have some burning questions, especially after this discussion. Um, We want to hear about them. Please hit us up on our Patreon page, on our Facebook group, and on our Twitter feed. All of that is linked in the show notes.
0: And now, stick around for our conversation with Sister Ilya Dilio. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Sister Ilya Delio. Ilya is a Franciscan sister of Washington, D.C. and holds the Josephine C. Connolly Chair in Christian Theology at Villanova University. Welcome to Jesuitical, Ilya.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: It, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, really excited to kind of nerd out a little about theology and science. Sci- science is the sort of scary part for me. Um, <laughs> did my degree in theology, but I stayed far away from the science department, oh, uh, unfortunately. I know.
2: Good theologian that you are. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> Yeah. so so you really are working at kind of the cutting edge of, of both of those fields. Um, and I think, you know, for our listeners, so one of the big things you write about and um, research is, is kind of the intersection of evolution and theology or or evolutionary theology. Um, and I think our listeners generally are on board with evolution as, you know, Darwin's theory of natural selection. Right. Um, and they they don't see that as in conflict with their Catholic faith, but they might not see it intersecting with their Catholic faith. So I'm wondering if we could start there. Um, you know, how do you define evolution and, and what does that have to do with theology?
2: Right. Wow. That's a nice... Simple question to begin with. So <laughs> uh, how would I define evolution? Well, I think so many people uh, look to Darwin's understanding of evolution as natural selection or selecting out those traits that would optimize the species. but I, I look I like to look at evolution more as an unfolding. I take evolution more like the scroll is just beginning to unfold. Uh, maybe God from all eternity had a vision for this creation. And it was uh, kind of written in the heart of God, if I could say that poetically. And now this creation is beginning to unfold. And I take evolution as those processes that allow the unfolding of life. And basically the two, two prongs that I see most important to evolution are the rise of complexity. In other words, things get more Deeply relational. Uh, we don't stay as tiny amoebas. We become from amoebas to cells to, you know, little pussy cats to you know chimpanzees and then eventually us type thing. Um, and then with complexity, uh, a higher, a greater, uh, or a, a rise in consciousness. So complexity and consciousness, I find, are you know uh, sort of typical of evolution. Um, and so therefore, I think the question of faith in evolution is. What kind of God is at work in a world that's unfinished? So, I think science just opens up new questions on the God-world relationship. And God's like, I'm okay with, I'm okay with you know the messiness of life. Uh, you know, it's cool. You know, I'm okay with disorder because you know I'm doing new things just to hang in there, and we'll do them together. That's how I that's how I kind of look at the, this relationship. Is that a
1: like a Christian spin? On the theory of evolution, or how Definitely. would that differ than, I don't know, maybe a, a secular Oh, th- sure. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I, I'm an, um, you know, I, I, let me make no, you know, present. I am an unbiased um, Christian. I mean, I am Catholic, right? So I'm married to the big guy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really have. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, make believe that this is a secular version that you can, you know, eventually adapt. Um, a secular version, a scientist would simply see evolution as processes of life towards greater diversity. That's about as simple as it can get. And why does that
1: really trouble a lot of Christians in their, in their
2: faith? We kind of came to an image of a nice, neat God, you know, a God who created everything in six days and then took a little Sabbath on the seventh, Uh, you know, a God who is the orderer, who knows everything, you know, in wisdom, God has ordered everything. And evolution is going, well, doesn't look that orderly to me, you know, like, is this the same God we're talking about? So I think evolution could cause a wrench in a static God. If your notion of God is static and fixed, A god who's all powerful, all knowing. Uh, I've got it under control. So you know, it kind of doesn't make sense, right? What kind of god, if you have it all under control, would you know be the god of a world that has uh, five great extinctions, cataclysmic events, with a lot of death and suffering? You know, and then here we are, ta da! And and so, I think evolution just. Causes us to pause on our God dial, you know, and say, "Well, what what exactly is our understanding? What what kind of God is the God of of the Old Testament and the New Testament?" So, yep can we can we get
0: into that? Because I think a lot of people would say, "Yeah, all knowing, all good, all loving," and they have trouble reconciling all those things. So, like, what are what are the characteristics that you
2: well, yeah, I think God? you know. Let's just let's let's pause there for a moment. Where did that all come from? I mean. You know, I mean, Moses or Abraham didn't say, "Oh yeah, God, you're all-knowing, all-powerful, and I'm sure you've got this all under control." I mean, basically, Moses was like, well, "Who are you again? You know, like, what's your name? Who, what do I tell the people? Who I, who, you know, who sent me?" So we find in the Old Testament a deeply relational God, uh, more than anything else. In fact, Abraham Heschel. Uh, spoke of God, the great, you know, um, uh, Jewish scholar said, "God is the most moved mover, not the unmoved mover." Mm. So, well, his,
0: so his answer to or God's answer to Moses was, "I am that I am," which I, mean, I don't know.
2: This, that was real clear answer, a, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm Not sure what that means,
0: but I don't know how you
2: get all. Powerful. Oh, sure, <laughs> I am sent me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, right. So basically, you know, we brought scripture together with Greek philosophy. And I think a lot of our understanding of God, it has nothing to do with Moses or Abraham, but it has a lot to do with Aristotle and Plato. So, you know, who who really did not know Abraham and Moses, by the way. So, you know, Greek philosophers are, you know, they're prior to Scripture, but they're imported to understand Scripture. And so I think a lot of our understanding of God begins to emerge in the Middle Ages and then takes shape after the Middle Ages in modernity as science emerges and all that kind of stuff, you know. So the omnipotent, the unchanging God, all that, all that stuff is, I think, more more modern than ancient. The ancients had a much more uh, – had a sense of God who was a more of a living God, a God who is really in relationship with us, a, a God who gets angry, you know, who gets upset. But then says, "Okay, you know, come back to me with all your heart. I'm still here for you."
1: One one thing I have trouble reconciling is that uh, Catholic thought and tradition tends to like build upon itself, or it's not. It at least that's my understanding. So it sort of incorporates what came before into what is what's right. unfolding, and scientific thought tend to work in sort of paradigm shifts where you have you discover this one thing and it causes you to rethink all of your priors and you have to like sort of build up from, from scratch. Those two ways of thinking about the world seem irreconcilable to me. And hmm. so I'm wondering how you think about what the answer for Catholic thought and Catholic theology is um, that has to take into account all of these traditional metaphysics and ways of thinking about God into incorporating like discoveries from paradigmatic shifts in the way we understand things like matter and substance.
2: Right. And I think, you know, uh, I think in the Catholic side of things, um, there's been a reluctance to do that. You're right in speaking about scientific paradigm shifts, but you know, let's let's look at that clearly because we didn't throw out entirely Newton's laws of physics. You know, We're just saying they don't really work anymore in the fundamental levels of stuff. So paradigm shifts are not just a clear, um, okay, we don't like that set of rules. They, don't, they no longer hold. We have a whole new set of rules. It is rather, it is a sublation, what we call a sublation or an unfolding. Some of these old rules now, they have new understandings. I think something of that has been taking place in Catholic theology But there are some fundamental um, concepts, and and one of them has to do with our understanding of God. Does God change, for example? Does God become? Uh, And we haven't had um, a good philosophical basis to really turn from the old um, Aristotelian Physics or the old metaphysical frameworks, and so we've we've had a reluctance. It's not we've had a lot of theologians. Karl Rahner would be one. I mean, let's look to our great Jesuit theologians. Of course, since, since we are in a Jesuit uh, institution here, they've been some of the most remarkable thinkers of the 20th century. Have been the Jesuits, and um, I've always wondered how you know. Really, a bunch of guys with a simple few steps on spiritual discernment can come out to be such great <laughs> intellectuals. But uh, that's another story here. It's because,
1: a shock to Ignatius, too. It, yeah.
2: it is, truthfully. But, you know, the fact is they're so incarnational. And that's, I think, where Catholic theology can really, you know, revisit the core, the foundation of Catholic belief, Christian belief is the incarnation. What kind of God becomes? See, if we can answer that, then we can begin to really work out some of these questions between science and religion. Of course, the one Jesuit who I have an affinity for, you know. Oh, this is good.
1: We were hoping to get to Teilhard, so maybe let's just dive in right now.
2: Exactly. Pierre Teilhard Desjardins, you know, wonderful thinker, uh, born in 1881, died in 1955. He was a scientist, a paleontologist. His um, expertise was in the Eocene era, 56 million years ago, and his day job was digging up old bones. I mean, that's literally what he did, you know, to try to piece together um, how the human emerged through this process that we know as evolution.
1: Jesuit Indiana Jones, got it.
2: (laughs) Yes, but he was a Jesuit, right? So trained in theology in England uh, and had a deep devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, actually. And so his whole career was Christianity is a religion where God gets involved in materiality, in stuff, you know, and he thought if any religion's going to be attuned to modern science, Christianity is definitely, you know, a, a good prime candidate for that. You know, what he came out by saying is Christianity, this is going to be shocking maybe, is a religion of evolution. It's a religion that seeks to bring matter and spirit together, mind and matter together in a personal union, in a personalizing way. So basically he's saying, look what's going on in evolution. I mean, we're here. We humans are here after 4.2 billion years of earth life, about 140,000, 150,000 years of the species Homo sapien. So we're here after very, very long amounts of time. Like, what are we doing here? Obviously, God didn't say, ta-da, humans, you know, there's Adam and Eve and, and the rest of you guys. It just doesn't work. That God's not a magician, right? And so there's something about the way this slow process of life that unfolds towards greater complexity, greater consciousness, is something beautiful about it because it gives us hope. It's a theology of hope that the future is always before us. That no matter how bad things get and how much destruction, God is a power of love that is, in a sense, unquenchable, unvincible love at the heart of this reality and always before it as the future towards which we're moving.
0: So that that kind of seems to put the emphasis on the Christ in Jesus Christ, like the cosmic Christ, as our friend Richard Rohr would say. Um, what about what about Jesus? What about the person we hear in the gospels? how does he intersect with kind of these high level ideas about evolution? And yeah, sure. Going? I
2: mean, I think Jesus is, in a sense, the paradigmatic human. He emerges out of this process. I mean, if Jesus is truly human, then like us, Jesus emerges out of this long process of unfolding life. But there is something about Jesus that is distinct. He has a, he's Jewish, right? He's not born Catholic. Uh, his parents weren't Catholic, he is Jewish. So there's something about him that has a distinct consciousness or awareness of God's immediate presence. Um, and that's what was shocking, for one thing, to, to his surround uh, to his disciples. You know, the reign of God is now. You know, God is, in a sense, here. Turn your hearts, turn your minds. God is doing new things. And what I love about Jesus of history is that. He's sort of a trickster. He destabilizes everything, you know, because he's so novel in his, you know, he's bringing women into the scene. He's reaching out to Gentiles. He's he's going out to places that, you know, would be considered unclean or, you know, you don't, just don't do that on Sunday. You just don't eat, you know, eat for wherever you want on Sunday. So um, I think Je- Jesus tells us the type of God. This is a God who is radical in love. You know, he says to us. This is what the human person has the capacity for. We have the capacity to become more in relation to God, to become something incredible for this planet. We have the capacity to help create a new community of life. But it's going to cost you, you know, like your life. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. You know, if um, evolution is like determined by things getting more complex, organisms getting more complex, um, a Christian reading of it is we're also moving towards like One or like an omega point or towards unity, right? I guess a place I trip up is it feels very, it feels a bit deterministic in that like the scroll is, as you said, the scroll is being unwritten. Right. right? There's a part of me that's like, well, if the scroll's already written, am I just along for this ride? Right. Is it
2: deterministic? (laughs) You use the right word. Yeah. Is it Uh, deterministic? That's a that's an excellent question, really, and it's a question many scientists debate. Uh, Recently, the evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson has revisited the question of direction evolution. Does evolution have direction? That's the question. Um, And then direction toward what would be the second part of that question. And is there an obvious Christian answer
1: to that, which is yes and God?
2: Well, I think if we take the New Testament and the resurrection um, and the eschatological hope for Christian life, we'd have to say, well, yes, there is a direction. We do look towards something. We're not just here willy nilly, like, okay, whatever happens, happens, you know, or we're not, you know, we're not nihilistic. We're not, it's all going to be destroyed. Uh, We're not just simply that. Well, you know, the righteous will be saved and all the, all the rest of the, you know, unrighteous will be lost to damnation or whatever. So there is something that's hopeful. And that's why Christianity has a message of hope. There's something that is yet to be attained or to be lived into. And Teilhard, it was about that. We're, we're about living into something that's more than ourselves, but that's part of ourselves. And so we participate. We really are part of what this unfolding body of Christ uh, is. We could be talking here in terms of the mystical body of Christ, if we want to use that language, that's more to the tradition. It's the same idea. That's not an abstract concept. The mystical body of Christ is the real reality of transformed minds and hearts in the love of God to become something more than what we are, that we can really begin to live a shared planetary life. And so, is are are we you know is this deterministic? Well, obviously God has not really revealed because does God even know what the vision you know He God has a vision like I have a vision too. I'm eventually going to complete a book. Will I know what this book will look like at the end? No, and I think God does not quite entirely know the outcome of how this vision will be realized because I think that outcome depends on us. We're not just you know, innocent bystanders, or we're not just passive spectators um, on this planet. We're like, it doesn't matter. Like people have said to me, well, it doesn't really matter what I think or what I do. I'm like, oh, it matters for the entire planet. It matters for all eternity, what you think and what you do. So we make a difference to God's vision. That's really what I want to say.
1: <laughs> well, and, you, and you, you just casually tossed in, you know, God doesn't know. Uh, yeah. Which, so God
0: I, is changing, and God doesn't know.
2: Yes. How about what's that? Happening? Oh my God. That's kind of scary, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> and so scary. when we were talking to you, I was like, you know, as Ashley mentioned, like most of our listeners are probably generally okay with, oh yeah, like evolution, totally fine. Right. And I, uh, part of me wants to say, like, you shouldn't be fine. Like, you don't know how much this is going to destabilize. The way you think about how God works in your life.
2: Exactly. Uh,
1: And and so, uh, can we just maybe pause there and unpack the God doesn't know and God changes his mind?
2: I think God knows in the sense of potentials. God knows all the fields. If we were to speak of all possibilities as fields of potentials, God would know all those potentials. But God doesn't really know the actuality of how those potentials will be realized in creation because... God is really in relationship with us. We make a difference to God's life. And I think that's what incarnation is about as well. I mean, Jesus, um, you know, that, that life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a new, you might say, an expansion of God's life in a new way. Otherwise, this whole thing would be like, well, what does it matter what we do? You know, what does it matter? Because God knows anyway what's going to happen. God knows how the war in Ukraine is going to end. And God knows that we're probably going to kill ourselves on this planet because we keep, you know, depleting it of its resources. Well, God doesn't know these things. And God is saying, I need you. I need you to realize my vision.
0: So I'm just very curious what, I don't know, what your image or metaphors for God are. Because on the one hand, it, you know, it's, it sounds very personal. It's a God that loves and needs and wants and doesn't know all the answers. But it's very clearly not the guy in the sky, which is how most people can try to conceptualize someone who wants and loves and needs. Um, so what, what what images do you use?
2: I would think of God as an embrace, if I were to think, you know, of God. I think of God as The wholeness of love, if you can, you know, your experience of love and then magnify that to infinity. Breath of life, you know, is a good one. Uh, So I like oceans. I love water and I love trees. Those are my (laughs) two favorite images from nature. Mm -hmm. So God for me is a tree of life, you know, because I love to watch the trees, you know, just they're reaching toward the sky. Uh, I love the ocean and its infinite horizon of water, just and I what I love about the ocean is constancy. You know, it's constantly, you know, uh, the, the tide flowing in and the tide flowing out, no matter what time of the day, what day of the year, what season of the year. And that constancy, I think, is as God's love. You know, that that that's the type of love that will constant. I am I am with you always until the end of time. I think God suffers with us. I think God suffers our bad decisions. Uh, I think God suffers our wrong choices, our evil ways, and I think we I think we choose wrongly because we have not yet moved into that full mindfulness, you know, that Jesus had. We do not have the mind, uh, that that co- deep that consciousness of God's abiding love as the very heartbeat of our lives. We have a lot of ego stuff, you know, going on, um, and you know, we might call that. Here's another thing for you guys. Original sin, uh, we're fallen, so you know that's why we you know, we go we make wrong choices. But I, I want to say maybe because we're just not you know we're not completely developed in our in our minds and hearts.
0: I want to kind of move us to to today because I think a lot of people. They can get on board with the idea that that we have evolved from lower species, <laughs> the <laughs> monkeys, and then different humanoids, and then here, and we're the pinnacle. It's it's harder to think of us as still evolving. Well, today. Jesus
1: became yeah us. Jesus right? chose so we clearly this form, <laughs> are the best form.
0: Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So so the idea of, of evolving today, uh, I think, it's harder to get our minds around, and it's something you talk about with in terms of our relationship with technology and especially artificial intelligence. Yeah. So to dig in there, why does theology need to take technology seriously? How are we evolving right now?
2: Yeah, well, that's a big question, right? But I do think there's um, that technology, and here we mean computer technology, is our fastest evolver today, precisely because it um enhances the levels of consciousness. In other words, we have much more information at our disposal and we have much faster ways of communicating this information. So our lines of relationality are happening rapidly uh, and they're happening at a speed that sometimes we can't even keep up with. And I think this this rise of technology has become, in my view, uh, a new kind of religious cosmos. Whereas the medieval person might have looked into the physical cosmos for wonder and for, you know, imagination and for, you know, pondering the great things like God and beauty and love. Now we go online, you know, and we look into cyberspace, which has an infinite number of possibilities. And so that question of um, artificial intelligence, therefore, in cyberspace means that we're trying to become something. We're trying to, in a sense, not just get faster information, but we're looking for something in in the computer world that we have we we have not yet found in the natural world. And some people, some scholars, have you know basically said has has religion just failed the human person in the 20th century? And are we looking online uh, to satisfy those deep religious desires for? union with god or for more life you know if christianity says the promise of immortality and happiness and salvation some people say well now we can get that online <laughs> you know mm-hmm. i can become happy by going into my second life and i, I can, can download, download my, my brain, brain. <laughs> <laughs> and live on forever so you know the maxim that i've written about um in many places transhumanism uh, transhumanist says technology will fulfill what religion promises But is that true? You know, can technology really fulfill what we promise, what religion promises? I don't think so. People seem pretty miserable right now, especially the young people who are most online. That's right, because I think technology can give the false impression that it can fulfill what religion promises when, in fact, it cannot. It can't replace God. Technology is not bad or good in itself. The only moral value technology has are the values we assign to technology. It's how we're using it and what we're using it for. And the question of our addiction to technology needs to be seriously addressed, and has to be addressed in in terms of what is religion failing to do. In other words, why why do a lot of young people prefer to go to their social media sites on Sunday rather than go to a church service? What is it that you know that's luring, alluring, or pulling people into that cyberspace that that's not taking place um, in? in real churches or you know institutional religion. Those are the questions I think we really have to deal more uh, deeply with. And I'm not sure we have entirely. People are like, well, how can we digitize this service? You know, well that's all good. <laughs> I mean you can streamline your, you know, your mass, um, great. But that's not the point. It's There's some things we're missing. So one thing that I hear in this
0: is that you seem to believe that there is room for human agency in evolution. Like, I don't... Oh, yes. I don't think... Did Darwin say that, or is that, is that a well, new idea? You know, because I, I don't... I, yeah, yeah,
2: I definitely would not place all my marbles on Darwin when it yeah. comes to evolution. Because I'm know? thinking
0: about, like, so, you know, I assume that when humans, you know, fire was a technology... And that maybe like led to some like increased biological functions that, you know, helped us along. Um, And I I just can't imagine people back then being like, yeah, we're not going to use fire. There could be some negative side effects. But now (laughs) here we are in the 21st century where we can we have something like social media and we look at it and we're like, well, we can see the downsides of this. And like, do you really see a world where we choose the the right option yes, and the, that the
2: church can help us do that. Yes, that's exactly right. So your question of human agency is an important one. We do play a, a an active role in how this world takes shape right? Again, we're not just passive spectators. So yeah, we, we invented fire and wow, look, we could cook, you know, that's really cool. We don't have to live on vegetables, like on green leaves all day. Um, and so we do things to, to advance life. There's something pushing us. That's what, you know, what is it that keeps pushing us to invent? We're creative. Creativity, Whitehead said, is the ultimate principle of the universe. So I think the incarnation is, we could look at it as the creativity of God. You know, we're not just being, saving us from a fallen world, we're being created for a new world. And that's, you know, it's how we look at things and how we understand them that makes a difference to what will get us up in the morning. Like, you know, is it worth still believing in Jesus? Um, Is it worth, you know, is it worth being part of church and towards what end? And so that's why I think bringing science and religion into greater dialogue with one another can give us reason to hope in a deeper way. Uh,
1: you know, I'm wondering uh, if we could just pivot a little bit uh, towards what it's like to work on this sort of cutting edge, I would, w- Ashley called it, uh, I would say, Tehard was definitely not beloved <laughs> by the <laughs> institutional church. That's uh, true. At his, in his time, neither was Thomas Aquinas. Um, that's true too. So- What do you see in your own work as the role of like a theologian where you're sometimes proposing things that um, either challenge the church or sort of, you know, do you have certain lines that you need to color in between uh, or feel like you need to, or how do you sort of bring along some of these new ideas so that people in the church can hear them?
2: You know, here I'll, you know, divulge my really Catholic side because I, I really believe that one has to be attentive to how the Spirit is working in our lives. Uh, I certainly wouldn't do any of this for fame or like because it's cool or, you know, like look at me, I'm, you know, stepping out. And uh, I do nothing of, I do anything I do has nothing to do with that. It has to do with mission and vocation, quite honestly. I mean, I've always felt called to do what I'm doing. And by saying that, my first love has always been God. I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, I've been doing, you know, Uh, as a Franciscan, i over 35 years in Franciscan life. So my vocational call was to the love of God. I think I was asked to study theology. I never wanted to study theology. I was a scientist, a trained scientist. My first undergraduate course at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut was on science and religion. I thought, well, well, what a breeze until I realized this is actually a discipline of, you know, uh, years of study. So I would say to be a cutting edge theologian is how are you being asked to you know first of all to enhance faith that you believe that that religion and faith have something vital to offer to this world that this world does not run on on data alone right that you know reducing everything to our genes our memes our neurons does not satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. And here I take Augustine's, you know, wonderful line of the Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that's the guiding principle. How do we enter into that restless heart? Um, For me, I was trained in science and I was, you know, I'm a theologian and it's a really fun area to be in right now because uh, we're in a huge, huge paradigm shift in theology and religion in the church. My uh, task as a theologian is not simply to provide data, it's to provide creative imagination. I think that's where theology has always lived best. Um, if we believe in the God of Jesus Christ, we believe that God is doing new things, how do we imagine that? And how can science help us realize that, that you know, um, vision in, in a more realistic way for our concrete lives? Well well part of what you're doing as a as a
0: theologian is you're you're working with undergrads, uh, young people and we've we've mentioned briefly, you know, some of the harms that that modern technology has had on young people. Um but in your writing you you seem to have some hope for for millennials and gen z. So I'm wondering what 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 gives you hope about the younger generations and maybe what are yeah. some some cautions or warnings you might yeah. give to us as
2: we enter this brave new world? Sure. Um, I do. I, I actually love the younger generations. Um, I do, and I, I find them very hopeful. I think they are not constrained by some of the older paradigms of a God above, or I would put it this way, constrained by transcendence. They're not so worried about uh, a God hanging over them. They're born into a networked world. So they're already born wired. They're born to think horizontally, which means Um, they're born to, they're born in a sense in a natural way for community. I think for younger generations, relationality is the name of the game. I mean, this is what social media has done for us. It has sort of erased what we call ontologies. It doesn't matter if I'm, if I'm texting you or emailing you, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, gray, you know, um, short, tall, uh, you know, the fact is we share a common interest in water justice, or we share a common interest in the plight of the Native American. And it's where that shared information is that we're sharing together that becomes shared being. And, and I think it's that type of deep relationality or hyper-relationality that is changing the human person today. That would be my way of speaking about the post-human. It's the person that is really complete or, or finds one's identity precisely in and through relationship with others. But older people would see as oversharing, <laughs> oversharing exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like get off that cell phone, would yeah. you? You know, because the cell phone seems to be an obstruction to sharing. Where I think for younger generations, it's precisely their personal sharing. So uh, we are in an intergener, you know. I think this is one thing technology has done. It has sort of widened the intergenerational gaps. Of consciousness by the way you know older people interpret things one way and younger people say what's their problem sometimes i think the world's religions are preventing that precisely because they hold on too tightly to their metaphysical constructs their old um their old systems of beliefs and and stuff it's like let go a little bit this is tayard let go enter into you know draw from your spiritual traditions into a richness but technology can really help bind us into a new mind and a new heart.
1: Okay. I think I uh, need another glass of wine, certainly.
2: <laughs> oh, my I, God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I- Ilya, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and unpacking some of this for us. I was so excited to talk to you. I'm um, reading, reading some of your books, and I, I had friends who were psyched to hear that we were chatting today. Um, so thanks for thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we do have one final question for you, which uh, we ask all our guests. And that is, if you could canonize one person, uh, living or not, fictional or real, Catholic or not, uh, cyborg or human, (laughs) uh, who would it be and why?
2: Well, obviously, this is an obvious one for me. I'd like to see Teilhard Desjardins canonized. He has been and still is severely misunderstood. He got to the core of catholicity of wholeness and homemaking, um, and yet deeply attuned to what the sciences um, are telling us. And his, you know, he wrote in a style that was overly poetic and flowery, and used language that no one knows what the heck he was talking about. But underneath all that stuff, there's some there's an incredible vision of a a. a not just a credible God, but a living God. And where the values of the New Testament, you know, from my perspective, the values of love and compassion and peace and, you know, what Paul writes about in the letter to the Galatians, all that comes alive. Uh, In other words, what Taylor is saying, get involved, you know, and stuff. Um, Be part of what this world is becoming. So he is my candidate for canonization, and um, first thing is we have to get him off the index of forbidden books, and then we can move <laughs> well, him up to the next scale of things. He's, he's
1: getting cited in encyclicals now. So, he, is, mean, he is. He you is. Know. I think
0: he
2: might be off the index by now. I'm going. You mentioned it. he's
0: he's a little inaccessible. Where would you point people to read first, either him or secondary sources?
2: Yes. Well, I think Ursula King's books are excellent um, on uh, Christ, and I have her books here on the Spirit of Fire. Uh, she's very clear. She's um, she's one of the best on um, the uh, summaries of Teilhard's work. I think Sister Kathy Duffy's works on Teilhard's mysticism, also very good, very clearly written. Um, I think Jack Hott's books on you know a more systematic approach to Teilhard's thought. But once you get through Ursula's books and Kathy's books, then you can go to Jack's books, and then you can come to mine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Just, your books, if people want to read, uh, if you want to give them like a intro to... Elio um, Delio, where should they start? And then maybe also, you mentioned you're working on a book. I want to hear. W- yeah, what's
0: going
2: on yeah. There.
1: <laughs> Me and your publisher, right?
2: Well, you know, uh, people like the Unbearable Wholeness of Being book. Th- all my books are connected only because every time I finish a book, I think, oh no, I didn't really say what I wanted to say, you know? So I am like, <laughs> well, they're all open the systems, book. right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm definitely an open system book writer, you know? Uh, every book becomes a new basin for another book. Um, I would say the emerging Christ and the unbearable wholeness people have liked and gotten something out of. I think for short, you know, insights, I think the hours of the universe are just short pieces that might whet your appetite to some of these ideas. You know, if they're just too much to take in all in one gulp, so to speak, you know, just try the hours of the universe. I have a little book called The Primacy of Love you know, really simple. It was supposed to be really simple. So I made it really simple, 10,000 words. And my book right now is called The Not Yet God, Um, Why Revelation May Not Be Fit. I I don't have a subtitle yet, but it's definitely (laughs) The Not Yet God. Um, Okay. And and why our lives make a difference to God's life. And it really is about this mystery of Christ. I, I Honestly, I don't think we have yet to really fully engage this mystery of incarnation
1: uh Ilya, thank you so much for joining us today
2: thank you it's great to be with you yeah thank you Ilya. and uh saint chardin great,
0: great for, for us, us yes
1: for Yay. Great Yay. <laughs> i get a little bit breathless my thoughts are too big can i get some comfort please i guess I should have been honest a break in my heart down, baby. I'm like a river that's overflow. The sooner you know it, the less do we hurt.
0: Let me speak the truth.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
0: And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach?
1: So really exciting new project coming out of America this week. The video team, some of our colleagues, our producer Sebastian Gomes in particular, is directed and written a brand new groundbreaking documentary called People of God, How Catholic Parish Life is Changing in the United States.
0: Mm, it's so good. We got to get a sneak preview yesterday, uh, Tuesday at the office. But now it is available for all subscribers to America. So you you do have to subscribe if you aren't already. Uh, But I promise you, it's worth your time. It's, uh, as our, as Sebastian has said, it's just one hour long, so no longer than going to Mass. So, I think it's worth your time.
1: Yeah, and I really appreciated this documentary because they're taking up a lot of questions facing the Catholic Church in the United States these days, like, um, parishes. Closing, parishes merging, pre-shortages, cost of living in urban areas, pushing uh, Catholics out. How do you integrate the Hispanic church and the Anglo church in one parish community? These are a lot of questions that are oftentimes detached from uh, reality when we debate them. And it takes real reporting and journalism to go get answers and hear stories. And that's exactly what the team in America did. They went to uh, four states, uh, Arizona, Louisiana, Wisconsin, Massachusetts so they're looking trying to get a, a, a very broad portrait of what parish life is like in the United States
0: so stay tuned for that but if you want to watch the film now which you definitely do go to slash people of God and now we have as one friend speaks to another the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week what do we have Zach
1: so want to stick with uh what we were doing last week which was paying attention to Pope Francis's Wednesday audiences, which right now are focusing on discernment, which of course is a big topic in the Christian tradition more generally, but it's particularly a contribution that the Jesuits have made to the life of the church, sort of unpacking this idea of what discernment is like and and how to do it. And so uh, last week we talked about self-knowledge and how important that is for discernment. Um, And Francis mentioned this week that we're, we're so far looking at three ingredients, the first one being prayer Second one being self-knowledge, which we talked about. Um, And this week, digging into desire. Um, And I love this because this is always sort of a a gotcha when people are encountering Ignatian thought for the first time, which is basically that like your deepest desires and God's will for you cannot be in contradiction, right? And that often I think strikes us as a, a stumbling block because in American culture, we're so often told that our desires are sinful and they're leading us down the wrong path or away from what God has planned for us. Um, and so I thought, you know, Francis talks a little bit about what what desire is and how it's different from like a want. It's more existential than that, right? Like i I, I notice a lack in my life. And... yeah,
0: that's what really jumped out at me, too but he he talks about the actual where the word desire come from comes from. um and in Latin, it means the lack of a star, like the lack of a lodestar, the lack of a reference point that can like point you to where you're going. And I just had never thought about desire in that way. And so I think that kind of explains why, in at least in my own mind, I thought of, desire as kind of like, you know, selfish, not something that could lead me to to God and to my fullest self.
1: One thing I wanted to talk about here is maybe w- times in our lives where we thought desires were maybe not really of God, or maybe there was a time when a particular desire was revealed to us for our, our own vocation. I'll start. I think given this is my, like, my anniversary, this feels very prudent to do so. Um, But when I was in college, I had sort of an experience in prayer that was very much like I want, uh, I I have a lack in my life of of like fundamental passion and sort of on fireness. And I had been in, I'd been in, you know, church for a long time. I'd been in relationships with people for, that were good on paper, but really not what was like calling out to me. And it still felt very much like I lacked sort of an existential grounding. And I remember saying to God at that point, like, okay, if if you've put this in my heart, like this sort of like, I want to live for this so deeply, I'll, I'll do it wherever you want me to, uh, whether it's the priesthood or whether um, it's in marriage. And a lot of people wanted me to join the Jesuits. There were certainly like ideas that people had about what relationships i should be in and but none of that felt fundamentally right and i i still it wasn't until i sort of remet my wife um if you corner me in a bar i'll tell you our love story ashley started like six times
0: (laughs) that's a modest estimate yeah yeah yeah.
1: so i won't i won't bore her with it right now but it wasn't until i met remet my now wife that i was like oh this is it this is like the desire that um god was calling me to and, and, and here's the thing is that it hasn't extinguished since then. And that's mm-hmm. another thing Pope Francis gets to is that um, it's what keeps you going and keeps you acting is, mm-hmm. is this fundamental desire in your life.
0: I'm thinking of um, in high school, I, I felt like a, a, a lack of intimacy with my parents. I felt and and like our relationship was like surface level. And at the time it came out as. Like ingratitude in and you know, like just being mad. Um, ingratitude. In okay. ingratitude. Got it. Um, okay. And like just like complaining that like you know everyone else is best friends with their parents. Like why don't I have that kind of relationship? But deep down it was it was this real desire to be closer with my parents. And and it took it took effort on both of our sides. But I. Like Pope Francis says, if you, if you don't have that desire, it, you know nothing's going to change. Like that's a sign that you're, that you're dead. <laughs> like, like, and so having what a desire that at the time kind of expressed itself as as um, being a annoying teenager was actually, I think, something from God that that was bringing me into deeper relationship with my parents. This is, this is parents. interesting
1: too because Francis has this what I thought was sort of a random aside where he sort of like talks about people complaining and to always beware of people complaining but the point he's trying to make was that like complaining just like basically kills your desire he ends with this beautiful prayer like to ask god uh may i be a person of great desire like that's just and may i know my desires like you like to ask god for that in prayer and so those are a couple thoughts that i will leave you with this week
0: all right and i will get us out of here Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup and Pope Francis. (laughs) You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinlith with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.